can do in this life. It always seems as if there are so many other important things that need to be done, but essentially they're all peripheral. This is the one important thing that needs to be done. I have read uh, just now most of the sheets that you've filled out for me to help me with giving you the interviews. And most of you have had numbers of different teachers and different methods. That's fine. I would like to ask you to do while you're here, exactly as I tell you to do. When you go home, you make up your mind what you like best. Don't start comparing while you're here. Don't start thinking, but he said this, and they said that, and I think this way, and I think that way. If you do, and it will be a very natural thing to do, it will impair your ability to progress. When you go home, make a comparison. Take a large sheet of paper and write plus, minus, yes, no, whatever you like. But while you're here, just do it. It's a one way of getting there. The Buddha's instructions are simple, straightforward, direct, and they are in detail. Nobody can miss what they mean. Most people miss out on doing them. It's so easy to understand. It's so difficult to do. And the more opinions, viewpoints, attitudes, and ideas we have, the more difficult it becomes. So make it easy for yourself. Just do it. Write it all down on a piece of paper, what you like and what you don't like, and then compare it at home. It doesn't mean that the Buddha wanted anyone to follow him blindly. Not at all. But I will talk about faith and confidence, what it really means and how it can help us. So we will see in a moment what great impetus this can give us. As I usually do, or often do, I use one of the discourses of the Buddha as the skeleton of what I will teach, a sort of, um, it gives us a sort of um, idea where the Buddha was trying to lead us, and then we go into the details how to go about it. This discourse, one of seventeen and a half thousand discourses that we have in this tradition 
is called the Sabasava Sutta. Sutta is literally translated a thread, a thread on which the words of the Buddha have been put like pearls on necklace. So actually the word Sutta means a discourse. And Sabasava, Sabha is all, and Asava are our taints, all the taints in English, the discourse on all the taints. Luckily, there are only three. We've only got three taints, but they comprise everything that ever gives us any trouble. All problems are contained in those three tents. The word asava, again, literally translated, means the outflow. There's such a word. It is that which comes out from us, the vibes. And these three are the underlying ones for everything that happens. And the stronger they are, the more difficult are our lives. The weaker they are, the less troubles we encounter. I will tell you those three, and I will tell you the seven ways that the Buddha has described of minimizing them, eventually eliminating them, and then we will go into the details how we can actually do that, step by step, one little step after another little step. The first one of those things is the desire for sensual gratification which means wanting to see, hear, taste, touch, smell, and touch, and think that which is nice. The thinking is also one of the sense contacts. So we have five senses plus the thinking. And as you must be aware of, our whole economy is based on nothing but that. The nicer it is, the more pleasant it is, the easier it is to sell it. And because we are so easily influenced, it is very difficult to see it and after having seen it, to desist. One gets caught up in the mass propaganda, so to say. But not only us. This teaching is two and a half thousand years old. And in those days, they didn't have the media that we have now. And yet, it was the same problem for the people then. It's the natural problem for human beings the desire for sensual gratification. 
And we will see in a moment, or as the days go by, all the possibilities of minimizing it so that we don't have to be a victim to our senses all the time. Because if we don't watch it, we're being victimized by them. The second of the taints is called the desire to be. Naturally, a totally natural thing for all living beings. We want to be, but sometimes at the expense of other beings. And the cause for those two is the third of the taints, the third one being called ignorance or wrong view, whichever way we like to call it. And ignorance in the Buddhist terminology does not mean that we haven't learned anything. In fact, in our case, it's probably we've learned too much. We've got a head full of information. It doesn't mean that we haven't learned. It just means that we are ignoring the basic underlying facts of existence. And because we are ignoring them, partially because nobody's told them to us, and partially because we haven't looked that far, out of that arise the other two taints. The desire for sensual gratification and the desire to be. The first possibility of counteracting these things and the foremost one is insight. And this is what meditation is all about calm and insight. There are innumerable methods. The Buddha taught 40 methods. We don't have to do 40 methods. But from what most of you have done already in the past, you've done numbers of them. But a method is a method by any name. It doesn't turn into anything other than when it works. When it works, it can become either calm or insight. If it doesn't become either one, either the method hasn't worked or one hasn't done it diligently enough. Methods don't matter. So we have calm, which is samatha, and insight, which is vipassana which is hopefully a result of meditation and not a method. Samatha and Vipassana are the two Pali words for any meditative process. Both have to be practiced. We never do one without the other 
because we're not adept enough at either. To practice only calm, which is what most people would like to get, a bit of peace and quiet, mind-stopping with all that rummaging around, doesn't work immediately. One needs practice, time, diligence, and steadfastness. One has to do it every day. It's the one thing that will give the mind the necessary strength. Just like food gives the body the necessary strength. And we don't eat just once in a while. It would be much cheaper, would be much less work, but we do it three times a day. With meditation, it appears as if it was necessary. Once in a while seems to be enough, but it isn't. It's the one thing that makes the mind clear and gives it strength, energy, and removes the unnecessary thought processes. So the first of seven steps to be able to minimize and eventually let go of these pains is insight. The other six are also necessary and need to be practiced, but insight is particularly appropriate as a step in our meditation retreat. Insight can have many steps on the way. In fact, it is usually described as either 9, 12, or 16 steps, depending on how many divisions one makes. In other words, it doesn't just come all at once. It also takes time. But one thing about insight that needs to be remembered very clearly is it isn't enough to know it. Between that what we know and what we can do is the biggest knowledge. Knowing is information which you can get during this retreat plenty, lots of information. But there are other steps necessary. First, one has to remember it. Then, one has to practice it. And then, one has to experience it. And then it becomes insight. Inside wisdom. Inside wisdom, which is then one's own. Until then, it's the Buddha's words, and interesting, but not one's own inner reality. In order to become one's own inner reality, it has to be experienced, and it has to be 
the understood experience. And the understood experience comes about through the remembrance of the information. See, if we have an experience and don't understand what it is, it doesn't help us. It may be interesting, it may be quite um, blissful, it may be very different from what we usually experience, but if we don't know what it means, it doesn't give us the necessary insight into ourselves. Insight is always into ourselves. The whole of the universe, O monks, lies in this fathom-long body and mind. What we understand about ourselves, we know about the universe. So what we're going to do in this retreat, we're going to take a journey within. We're going to look inside of ourselves. One of the important things in order to do that properly is to keep noble silence. All of you who've been on retreats before are well familiar with that. Noble silence means that we don't talk to each other. You can always ask questions here in the hall. You all have personal interviews with me about the meditation practice. If you need anything of a material kind, anything that has to do with food or soap or toothbrushes or anything like that, Barbara and Anya can help you. But otherwise, take this time for that inner journey. Out there in the world, as I have experienced the past two weeks that I've been in America, it's extremely fast and stressful. There is so much movement out there which is giving one the illusion as if one has to move with it. One doesn't. One can stay back from it, but it's difficult. So here we have a chance. No movement other than the movements we make. Here we can learn to be in control of the mind. Every meditator who has ever watched him or herself knows that as long as we can't stay put with the mind in one spot, we're not in control. And all that movement out there aggravates that. We're almost becoming victims of movement. And you'll notice that immediately when you start meditating. The mind will move. 
and we're going to learn to make it stand still where we want it to be. Insight has many facets. I'll talk about one of them right now because it's absolutely necessary to use that particular one right from the start. We all have that ability and we need to make the best of that ability. There are five spiritual faculties which, when practiced, turn into five spiritual powers. And all ten of them, which are the same, five the same as faculties, as the powers, become ten of the thirty-seven factors of enlightenment. So you can see from that how important they are. They are often compared by the Buddha with a team of horses. One lead horse and two pairs. The lead horse can go as fast as it wishes, but the pairs have to be balanced. If one goes faster than the other, the cart will topple. Now our lead horse, or our lead faculty, is mindfulness. Mindfulness is paying attention. And in this case, paying attention to ourselves. Now obviously, mindfulness is necessary for the meditation practice. But it's also necessary outside of the meditation practice. And this is what I'd like to refer to right now to begin with. So that you can start this retreat with trying to remember over and over again how important mindfulness is in order to bring the mind to a point where it doesn't reach out to the world, where it doesn't wobble and waver, but where you can put it where you want it to be. If one can put one's mind where one wants it to be, one would never become unhappy again. Only a fool would become unhappy voluntarily. So if we put our mind where we want it to be, we have gained the inner resource of happiness. Totally independent of outer conditions. Mindfulness is what will take us there. It is a necessary ingredient of that journey. Without it, the journey doesn't happen. Mindfulness means that we know what's going on with, it, with ourselves. If we don't know, we can't change. So the first thing is to know. 
Mindfulness has four possibilities, four foundations. The four possibilities will, in the course of the course, become clearer. But right now, the first one. The one which the Buddha deemed the most important one. The body. He said, who does not have mindfulness of the body cannot have access to the deathless. The deathless is another word for enlightenment, nirvana, liberation, freedom, whichever word one wants. Freedom from dukkha. The importance that he put to the attention on the body can also be found in the many different ways that he has described the possibility of mindfulness on the body. So we will have two major aspects of that. One is in the meditation, which I will explain in a moment, and the other one is outside of meditation. Outside of meditation is the moment we get up from this pillow. The body will do many things. The first thing it will do, it will get up from the pillow. Then it will walk to the door. Then we will open the door. Then we'll put on the shoes. Then we will walk to the next door. Become aware of opening it. Walking to our room. Pushing down the handle of the door. Sitting, standing, going to the bathroom, getting dressed, getting undressed, eating. The body performs hundreds of functions every day. Each one needs to be mindfully attended to. What does it mean to be mindfully attending to a bodily function? It means having the mind on the body function, knowing exactly what the body is doing and not thinking all sorts of other thoughts. If one can do that even for a few moments, one has brought the mind under control. What is the body doing? If the mind stays with that movement, it doesn't have a chance to become negative. That's why the Buddha said, the one way for the purification of beings, for the elimination of all dukkha, all pain, grief, and lamentation, for entering the noble path, for realizing Nibbana, that one way is mindfulness. Ekayana, one way, paying attention. Doesn't it sound simple? Anyone who's ever tried knows how difficult. 
The mind just doesn't want to do it. Before one knows it, it has already made up a story. A story about the future, a story about the past, a story about its dislikes, a story about its wants and hopes and wishes. And what the body is doing is completely forgotten. Until 10, 15 minutes later, the mind says, wait a minute, wasn't there something I was supposed to be doing here? That's right, mindfulness on the body. And another two minutes, and then it goes off again. There's no blame attached to this. The formula is recognition, no blame, change. This is the normal way human minds work. They are constantly playing games with us. They think and they imagine and they react and they project and they hope and they wish and they dislike. Get angry, upset, emotional, all sorts of things. Why is it purification of being when we are mindful to and pay complete attention to our body movement. When we play, pay complete attention, we can't be negative. We can't be upset, we can't be worried, we can't be angry, we can't be fearful, nothing of the sort. Either we pay attention or we do something else. When we pay attention, purification is automatic. And if we don't use that automatic possibility of purification, meditation will not have the desired effect. Meditation, when we are concentrated, is also automatic purification. But it alone does not suffice. We have to support it at all moments, knowing exactly what we're doing. Now, not only does it purify, because negativity cannot arise, it also brings the very first step of insight. The very first step of insight is that mind and body are two and that the mind is in charge. They are dependent upon each other. They are interconnected, of course, but the mind is in charge. We don't walk, we don't sit, we don't go, we don't eat, we don't wash, we don't dress, unless the mind has said so. Now, what I would like you to do is to pay attention. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Well, when you have your interviews, you can tell me how simple it was to pay attention. Pay attention outside of the meditation. Naturally, during the meditation, you want to become calm and collected and happy and peaceful. But outside of meditation, why not be calm and collected and happy and peaceful too? 
All one has to do is pay attention to the movements of the body. That's the first step. The second step is to recognize that the mind has to have the intention that the mind calls all the shots and that the body follows when it can. Sometimes it can't. But in our simple movements during the day, of course, it can. It can follow. One of the very important results of that personal experience, the understood experience that the mind is in charge, is the fact that many people, when they find that out, will actually continue to meditate. because they have found out that it's absolutely essential to give the mind that purification and strengthening possibility. As long as we don't know that our mind is completely in charge of our lives, we may do many things which are contrary to our own happiness. So the first thing that you gain from having mindfulness of the body outside of the meditation is that the purification aspect is automatic because nothing negative can arise. And the second benefit is the first step of insight. The first step of insight is not what I'm telling you. That's information. The first step of insight is your own understood experience. The difference is immense. All I can do is give information. That's all. If you want to use it, that's fine. If not, that's fine too. Now with that understood experience, and with the automatic purification, you're also, while using mindfulness of the body outside of meditation, you're also keeping the mind from going too far afield. Everybody hopes in meditation to have calm, to have real concentration. If the mind goes too far afield outside of meditation, it's a forlorn hope. It won't happen. Of course it takes time because now you've brought with you many of the thoughts and experiences from the world. So as we are stay here a little longer, it becomes easier. But if you don't help yourself through that, through that attention on the body movement, the mind will again and again try to get out of the meditative process. Meditation itself happens while we're sitting 
or doing walking meditation. But mindfulness happens all the time. Mindfulness is the step towards meditation. Mindfulness itself is not the meditation. But in order to get started with our meditation, we are going to use mindfulness. The Pali word for what we're using is anapanasati. The word sati, S-A-T-I, means mindfulness. Anapana is in-breath, out-breath. So we are going to use mindfulness. But again, that's only a method. The meditation stops when the method is no longer necessary. And hopefully that should be the case for a number of people here because the method itself can take us there where we don't need the method anymore. The way to look at the method is that it's the key a key that will unlock a door. If we hold the key in our hand long enough and steady enough to fit it into the keyhole, and we can unlock the door. So we have to remain long enough and steady enough on the meditation subject so that we can unlock the door, the door which leads inward to our own inner being, where all that, what we've ever been searching for, can be found. We've probably searched for happiness and peacefulness and joy and contentment and fulfillment and maybe thought, and maybe still think, it's out there somewhere. It's nowhere out there. It's strictly within. We've all got it. But we've got to get at it. The Buddha's instructions are clear-cut, detailed, and they have worked for two and a half thousand years. They can work for us just as well. But we've got to know what to do. The more we are able to keep mindfulness going during the day, the easier it is to keep mindfulness going during meditation. The other four aspects of the spiritual faculties, I will just give them their names right now and explain them at another time in detail. Those that have to balance are energy and concentration and faith and wisdom or confidence and wisdom. 
These are the two pairs which have to be balanced. And I will explain them in detail. Just say this about energy and concentration because it is an important aspect of the meditation. Concentration, when it is done properly, gives a lot of energy to the mind. But if there is too much energy in the mind to start out with, the concentration won't happen. Because the mind thinks up too many stories. Now if the concentration is strong, but there's no energy in the mind, the mind will not be aware of what is happening and drowsiness will result. Now this is a very common difficulty and that's why I'd like to refer to it right now, the drowsiness. If during meditation you feel yourself becoming drowsy, which means that the mind is no longer paying complete attention, being totally mindful to what's happening within, but is sort of feeling quite um, at ease, but foggy. Open your eyes immediately and look at the light, either at the window or at the electric light, wherever it's light. Move the body in this way to have some more um, movement in the body which uh, increases the blood circulation and give yourself a pep talk. What did I come here for? What do I really want to do? Have I come here for myself? And what's my objective? Whatever is necessary to give yourself a pep talk. And only when you feel quite alert again, totally alert, close the eyes again. If necessary, if the mind feels drowsy, foggy, keep them open just a little bit, but look down on the ground. Without focusing on anything in particular, just looking down. Sometimes that helps. Because what happens is when we do get concentrated is that we stop thinking. And very often the only opportunity the mind has ever had not to think is the moment before falling asleep. We can't fall asleep and think at the same time. It's not possible. So we have to stop thinking in order to fall asleep. And if we haven't had any experience of concentrated meditation, that may be the only time that the mind has experienced something like that of not thinking. So it gets then the idea, oh, this must be bedtime. And so then it becomes drowsy. So counteract it with that. It's a very common difficulty it happened to one of the great 
disciples of the Buddha, Ma Mughalana, who asked the Buddha what to do, and the Buddha told him to open the eyes, to move the body, even if necessary, to stand up, to um, give himself a pep talk, and not to close the eyes again until the mind was totally alert. The alertness of the mind during concentration makes it possible to experience within that what everyone is looking for. The drowsiness makes it impossible. A way to check it yourself whether the mind has been alert or drowsy is when the meditation is over and you feel tired you want to go and lie down it didn't work the mind was foggy and drowsy if when the meditation is over you feel energized full of confidence full of energy, full of um, physical and mental zest, then it works. Then the concentration was coupled with alertness. It's very easy to check it out for oneself after the meditation is finished. Wanting to go to sleep is a sure sign. I'm going to lie down. Wanting to lie down is a sure sign that the meditation didn't work. So concentration and energy is a pair and they're both spiritual faculties which can become spiritual powers and they are a pair which always have to be balanced. And I will talk about it again, about energy and concentration and most certainly about faith, confidence and... So we have a good basis for realizing what our potential is. We all have those faculties within us and the realization of that potential is also another helpful factor in making the meditation happen. To watch the breath as a meditation subject, we can have quite a number of different ways of doing that. And anyone whose concentration is not yet complete needs to have, especially the first two days, a crutch, something to help the mind to stay with the breath. The first two days are usually the most difficult because the mind is required and requested to do something entirely different from what it does all day long. Usually it thinks all day long, makes plans and uh, discusses with itself and with others what to do, and then it dreams all night long. Here it's supposed to be quiet. So the first two days, of course, 
are more difficult until it gets used to that. The possibilities are, the first one is counting. That's for those people who like numbers. Some people do like numbers. If one doesn't like numbers, it's useless to use counting. One on the in-breath, one on the out-breath. Two on the in-breath, two on the out-breath. No further than ten, starting with one again. Every time the mind wanders off back to one, instead of trying to figure out was I at six or maybe I was already at eight, Maybe I was already finished with ten. <laughs> Automatically back to one. Makes it easy, simple. Now that's for those who like that, like numbers. Then for those who like words, use a word. If you have a word that you're particularly fond of, use it. Otherwise, Peace on the in-breath, peace on the out-breath. It's better to use only one short word. But if the mind can't stay with that, love on the in-breath, peace on the out-breath. It's better to use just one, please. If you have a particular word that you really like, that you've used before, use it. Always remember that using the numbers or using the words is in conjunction with the breath. So make them happen together. If you don't like numbers, don't like words, but have a visual mind that can visualize easily, use that ability. Visualize the breath as if it were a cloud or an ocean wave, whichever you prefer. And if you have good visualization ability, make it look beautiful, sparkling, lovely color, whatever you like. As the breath comes in, the cloud comes in. As the breath goes out, the cloud goes out or the ocean wave comes in, the ocean wave goes out. Some people find it possible to become concentrated with the ocean wave because it's a natural movement as it comes in and out. If you don't like numbers, don't like words, don't like pictures, sensations, the physical sensation. The physical sensation that arises when the wind of the breath touches the nostrils, the breath goes in, up the nose, to the forehead, down the throat, into the lungs. You may be able to find all those sensations or just a few of them. And then you will find that within breath, the lungs expand with the outburst, they contract. So as they do that, you feel at least that much. If you do that one with a sensation, go as far in 
as you like. But when you watch the outburst, stay close to yourself. Don't let, don't watch it way out there. All the concentration, all the results of concentration happen within. All the things that we are looking for are within. Nothing is out there. Out there is only what we've dreamt up. What we really want is in here. So stay within. As you watch the sensation, don't search for them. Let the breath and the sensation occur and become aware of whatever you can find. And then there's another one, another possibility. And that's watching, that's for those who have already practiced. It's not so easy for a beginner. Watch beginning, middle, end of the breath. Each breath has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you can use one, two, three to get started at least, to watch that. It may be useful for those who have already done some practice. Come aware of beginning, middle, end. This is also, this particular one, is very helpful for insight. And this is another thing that I would like to mention right now. If the mind is totally incapable at the beginning of the course to stay with the breath, it just runs off all the time. Become aware of how each breath finishes and a new one starts. The impermanence of each breath. And we rely on breath as our life support. Without it, none of us would be alive. And yet, it's totally impermanent. The continuity of it hides its impermanence. So if you can't stay, and that's quite possible, especially the first and second day, with the breath as the meditation subject, in order to gain some calm, look at that insight. Experience that insight. The impermanence of that which means our life. Look at it, see it for what it is, and infer from it how impermanent everything is that happens here within each person. Label the thoughts. Give them a name. This is one of the most important practices that we can do in order to gain insight into ourselves, insight into our habitual way of thinking, and also insight into the, unne the unnecessary thinking that we're doing. And it will help us to change our thinking in everyday life. The labeling of the thought means 
that when you become aware of the fact that you're thinking instead of meditating, look at it and say, future, past, unnecessary, dislike, boredom, worry, fear, anxiety, whatever it may be, the very first label that you put on is the right one. Don't search for another. Just put the label on. Now, if you can do that, one of its greatest advantages is the help we get through that in daily living. If our meditation does not help us to live better, we're meditating in vain. We might as well try Tai Chi. It's got to have a result. Now, labeling our distracting thoughts in meditation and then substituting with attention on the breath makes it possible in daily life to label our thoughts, see whether they're wholesome or unwholesome, and substitute the unwholesome ones with wholesome ones. The negative ones with positive ones. And eventually, we become really in control. This is one of the immediate benefits we get from meditation, even if we don't become concentrated. We learn to see that so much of our thinking is totally unnecessary and we stop believing every thought that we have. Because in meditation we can see quite clearly that none of them are believable. We'll see in a minute. They're just thoughts. And they come and they go. And they do not need any follow-up. In daily living we usually follow them. Here, we substitute with attention on the breath. If the mind becomes concentrated, naturally, we no longer need to do this labeling. But then the thoughts become so wispy and fine that they seem to be just passing by and have no substance to them. As long as the thoughts are interrupting the meditation, and have substance to them, labeling is our greatest help. The very first label that comes to mind. The other thing that arises during meditation are unpleasant sensations from the sitting position. That too can be very helpful. It can be very informative. We can see from it that we always try to get away from unpleasant sensations. That we want to move subconsciously so fast that we don't even know yet that we have moved. What we need to do here is to become aware of the fact that this follows 
a certain pattern and that this pattern does not have to be a constant and repetitive reaction which we use all the time but that we have the ability to break through that. The pattern which is happening here is that from sense contact, which in this case is touch contact, comes a feeling. All sense contacts have as a next feeling. From feeling comes perception. Now the feeling is unpleasant, so the perception says pain, and from that comes the reaction. The reaction which may not even be in words, but just indeed movement, getting away from it. It may also be in words, saying, I can't sit like that and this is awful and why didn't I bring that chair I was going to bring and I don't like it at all here and all the rest of it. It may be in words, but it may just be subconscious movement. Instead of reacting to the unpleasantness, taking the mind of it and putting it back on the breath and learning from that that we only know that where our mind is. Because everybody can do that for a moment or two, taking the mind off the unpleasant feeling and putting it back on the breath. And having it done it a few times, one can have the understood experience that we do not have to react. We can choose to react. And then if the mind says, okay, I choose to react now, I don't want to sit like this, then move slowly, gently, so as not to disturb your own mind and the neighbor's mind too much. And admit to yourself that you have been a victim to your own unpleasant feelings. Perfectly right. We are constantly victims to our own unpleasant feelings. Except in daily life, we never admit it. Here, we can, easily, to ourselves. In daily life, we usually blame somebody else for it. Here, easy. Nobody says anything, nobody does anything, so we've become a victim to our own unpleasant feelings. This is the way humanity works, and we might as well find out about it. In other words, I'm not saying you must sit. On the contrary, what I'm saying is, please find out how you react. If you were to sit just in order to sit through it, or to prove to yourself that you can sit with pain and are able to get back to the breath, that's fine. But if you just sit there and dislike it intensely, it's useless. We have already enough dislike within us without adding to it through the meditative posture. That's not the idea of meditation. The idea of meditation is calm and insight. Here we can gain insight 
into our reactions, into the reactive process which happens with us all the time. When we become calm enough, which means concentrated enough, we don't feel it anyway. Feel it when we get up. So to sit with dislike and or with pride or with rejection is useless. Become aware of what's going on, that's all. And then act accordingly. See how it happens and see how the reaction is. So what we have is we have thoughts which need to be labeled so that we get to know them and don't believe them anymore. We have unpleasant feelings, sensations from sitting, which we can see how we react to them, try not to, and if it becomes imperative to, then we must do something about it. Realize we're victims to our own unpleasant feelings. And I'd like you to pick one of the five possibilities which I've mentioned and stay with that choice tonight and tomorrow morning and then when we come together again after the breakfast then if you want to change to a different um, method that's fine but give it a try first numbers words picture sensation or beginning, middle, end. Pick one and stay with it. If the mind is totally distracted, use insight. The impermanence of the breath, which means us, each one of us. It's totally moving. It's never the same. The solidity which we appear to have is an illusion if you see the impermanence. Before we actually do some meditation, maybe there are some questions about anything that I have omitted to say or that wasn't so easy to understand. If there are any questions, please, now. First one is counting. One on the in-breath, one on the out-breath, two on the in-breath, two on the out-breath, no further than ten. Second one is word, peace on the in-breath, peace on the out-breath. The third one is visualization, but you use the faculty, the ability which you know you have. If you have the visualization ability, please use it. If you like words, use it. The visualization, that that is most often used is the breath as an ocean wave coming in and going out. Sensation following the breath and the sensation that it is creates in the body, in and out. 
And the fifth one is beginning, middle and end of breath, where you can count one, two, three if you like, or just become aware of beginning, middle, end of breath every time. That is a little more difficult and takes more mindfulness, more attention, the last one. It's a little more difficult. Yes. Yes, um, you weren't here when I started my talk and I begged all of you to please do that, what I'm teaching, while you're here. Then, when you come home, you can make an assessment of what you don't like and what you like and then go to that which you prefer. But while you're here, first of all, you have a much better chance of being successful when you follow the instructions that I give. And also, I have a chance to help you with those instructions which I give and do not have to guess at what you're doing. So please do exactly as I say and then when you get home you do exactly as you wish. Okay? Yes. Use what? Which one? You mean you mean the breath? Of course, the breath has to accompany any of those which I've said. If you use the words in and out, you become aware of the word as well as the breath. The breath. The breath. Just be with the breath and you say in, out. The sensation is a physical thing. That's a physical feeling, a sensation. But the breath as such, now as at this particular moment, you don't know any of it. You don't know sensation, you don't know breath, no nothing. So when you become aware of it, you become aware of the breath, and you say in and out with it. That's fine. Mm, I wouldn't do that gets confusing. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't use words and sensation. Either or. Use either or. Gets a bit much. We'll do a guided loving kindness meditation now. And in order to get started, please put the attention on the breath again for just a few moments.
think of yourself as your own best friend, the one you can rely on, helpful and caring, concerned and loving. Fill yourself with a feeling of friendship, of care, and surround yourself with love. So that you can sit in that as in a warm, protective environment. And now think of yourself as the best friend of the person sitting nearest you in this hall. Fill him or her with care and concern, friendship, helpfulness, and surround him or her with your love. Think of yourself as the best friend of everyone who is here. Fill everyone with the depth and sincerity of your friendship, care and concern. Surround everyone with your love.
think of yourself as the best friend of your parents. Whether they're still alive or not. And fill them with your friendship. With care. Surround them with your love. Let them feel how your heart goes out to them. Think of yourself as the best friend of those that are nearest and dearest to you, those you may be living with. Let your friendship fill them from head to toe. Giving them your care and concern embracing them in your love without expecting the same in return. Think of your good friends and be their best friend, giving them the gift of your friendship, of your love, without expecting them to give the same in return.
think of your neighbors at home, colleagues at work, people you meet in the shops, in the offices, in your travels, acquaintances, relations. Be their best friend. Be grateful that they're part of your life and extend your friendship to them, your concern, your care, and your love. Let them all enter into your heart. Now think of any one person whom you might find difficult or who may have put obstacles in your way or towards whom you're totally indifferent. And be that person's best friend, helpful and caring, forgiving and loving. Do not close your heart even towards that person, but take him or her also into your heart. Now feel your heart filled with friendship, care, helpfulness, concern, and love. And let it spill over and scream out of it to beings near and far. Let it go to people wherever you can think that they may be, around here, 
further afield. The whole city the whole state, the whole country, as far as the strength of your love and friendship can reach, touching as many hearts as possible, giving yourself Now put your attention back on yourself. Feel the contentment that comes from making the right kind of effort and the joy that comes from giving. Fill yourself with joy and contentment, realizing that that means being your own best friend. May all beings be friends with each other. <laughs> 